Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and fully self-enlightened one. Um, there were some questions came up um, during the interview, so I sort of wander around one or two of the uh, questions that arise around the Buddha's teachings. Um, the ones about karma, uh, maybe a, a little touch on um, rebirth, uh, the problem of free will, or the lack of it, that sort of area, you know. Uh, the easiest place to start really is dependence origination, where we, <coughs> which we chant in the morning. Uh, the Buddha there starts with this word of ijja, which translates, they translate as ignorance, which is really has a, a feeling that we well, shouldn't know, you know. <laughs> but it's a pure not knowing, see? and that not knowing when it comes across when it comes across information um, presumes. Uh, that it it belongs that the information belongs to it or that it is that information now that's just a, a silly modern speak for identity <laughs> what, what I'm saying is that when we're born uh, we don't know anything we have potential but we don't know anything and as the information comes in uh, we experience it as me so there's no separation between the, the, uh, the information coming in and the me. It's all me, you see. So there, right at the start of our lives, is the fundamental problem to do with identity. Who am I, you see? And remember that this, uh, this avidya, this um, not knowing. then produces acts in the world which, we, which, which is translated as sankara, which we can translate as habits, our habits, our habitual way of saying things. And it would seem that even, in, you know, even before three years, three years old, we've, we've got settled attitudes to life. We've <laughs> got attitude. So um, with our distorted view of the world and as to who I am, and all this information coming in from society and parents and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we end up with a body of habits, habitual ways of thinking, habitual ways of seeing, habitual ways of understanding things. You can see it most vividly between cultures. You know. But even between individuals within society you know just, they live in different we live in very different worlds sometimes yeah so these worlds are, are constantly remember created by us within ourselves from whatever information comes through our senses i mean one of the obvious ones would be sight so if somebody's colorblind they obviously live in a different world of color to people who have ordinary sight and they might not know it for years. I had, uh, when I went to an optician uh, once, the glasses didn't seem to fit straight. So when I went back, uh, he told me I had astigmatism, which distorted things, like, like a wave on a, on a glass. I didn't know I had that. <laughs> to me, the world looked perfectly all right, except when I put these glasses on. <laughs> and he'd forgotten this stigmatism that's what he had here he hadn't actually done this stigmatism and that's a really good example of ignorance not knowing that I had a stigmatism I presumed I was seeing the world as it really is See? or as, as it really ought to be or, as, or I was seeing it from a, a, a really from a side point of view that is the way it is but I wasn't. 
And it was only through the uh, clever work of an optician that I could see the world more clearly. But it's that point that you don't know. We don't. The whole point about delusion is you don't know where you're deluded, or else you wouldn't be deluded. <laughs> this is sort of a, a, a paradoxical definition. So that's a double bind, isn't it? I don't know where I'm deluded. How the hell am I going to find out where I'm deluded? Do you know what I mean? It's like it puts you in a, an impossible situation. But whatever the situation is, we've ended up with these habits. Right? They're not all horrible and terrible, of course. Some are, some are beautiful. And then um, we enter into, with that as an underground, yeah, with this, this, with this distortion, the distorted way of seeing the world and what it creates, all these habits, sort of running underground. There are, there are, there are moments of existence, you might say, momentary existences. And it's in that moment that the rest of the, the middle part of the, of the dependent origination was clearly seen by the Buddha. That first of all, you have, consci- you have, the bo- you have a consciousness and then the body and mind. He separates consciousness from body and mind. Consciousness from body and mind. Yeah. Nama, Rupa. So, Abhidya, Pacha, Sankara, Sankara, Pacha, Nama, Rupa. So, He's making a distinction there because what he's saying is without the act of consciousness Nama Rupa is a waste of time. I mean, you're, you may as well be dead. <laughs> and consciousness is a waste of time unless there's something to be conscious of. And they both arise at the same time. You're conscious. You can only be conscious of something as it arises and passes away. And that's your momentary existence. So your consciousness is basically in Buddhist terms what we experience. See? Now, uh, if I were to give an, uh, sort of an analogy of that, if you take a monitor or a television, there's all this information coming in, and it has to be put onto a screen. All these percepts and all these emotional stuff, all that, it has to be put somewhere where it can be cognized, where it can be seen. Huh? That's the act of consciousness. Yeah, and the awareness is what knows what's on the screen. Yeah. I'll come to that in a bit later. So then he splits up this nama rupa, the body and mind, into its various faculties, what he calls the six senses. The sixth one being the mind-brain complex, where everything is sorted out. And you end up with a point of contact. So that point of contact, which means this present moment, the point of contact in a present moment, must have an object. It must have the consciousness, and it must have a sense base. So if any of those are missing, then you, you can't be conscious of something. So when you're asleep, you're not conscious of small sounds. Because there's no consciousness there. There's no awakened consciousness. Yeah? If, you're, if you've lost your hearing, then you don't hear anything. And in a very silent room, uh, you normally don't hear anything, at least out there. So these three things have to come together for what the Buddha called this point of contact. And it's then, you see, that we make this uh, dual world. Because what we experience is then separated into two types. Either it's pleasant or unpleasant. I mean, there's a whole stuff of neutral stuff. But when you look into a neutral feeling, you go really towards it, you'll find it splits ever so gently either into what is unpleasant or pleasant. So there's, that's the natural duality of the world we live in. It's either pleasant or unpleasant. And that's, that's given. And everybody has their own way of experiencing the world as pleasant or unpleasant. And a lot of these things are culturally bound, as you know. Say food, you know, you, tend to like this food more than that, etc., etc. So all that is, shall we say, a given from every moment, conditioned from the past. It arises. Uh, I shouldn't say conditioned from the past entirely, because it's conditioned also by the present incoming stuff. Huh? 
then uh, that's the point of Vedana right? feeling feeling and then there comes this reaction which now links into this underlying stuff this, this not knowing and these habits whereby we have a reaction to something so obviously when we don't like something there's a reaction to get rid of it and when we like it we want to indulge it you know so that's the aversion and the aversion splits into two of course a fear if it's too big so those are your those are our basic attitudes to the life that we're living in terms of coming out of ignorance coming out of ignorance yeah acquisitiveness aversion fear see and uh Again, we go back down to this point of ignorance. When what it manifests, a delusion. Right? So the ignorance manifests as a delusion, and the delusion is the sense of identity. I, I am. See, when you finish that sentence, that's where the delusion is. The I with the object. See? So, <clears throat> I am a man. Well, that's fine, conventionally speaking, I hope. But... <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's the business of the sense of I being this this particular being, you see. And of course it gets undermined with serious illness and death and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, you have that underground um, ignorance beginning to manifest as a reaction to what we're actually experiencing. It's coming out of these habits, these little group of habits. So, obviously, um, today, if, you know, as soon as we, we see the soup or something, you see, there comes a natural habit of feeding our um, appetite, but there's also within there the habit of indulging. So that pops up, you see, that pops up out of this, out of this quagmire that exists underneath <laughs> the present moment and it's, it's, being, it's like a, a little button that comes up, shoots up, you see. And that's the greed coming, you see. So <clears throat> then, uh, now that point, the next point is uh, the upadana, the grasping of it. And what this means is the sense of I comes in. And this is really quite crucial and an amazing sort of discovery by the Buddha. Because if this wasn't discovered, there'd be no, there would be no escape. There'd be no escape. The fact that the desire comes first and then the identity means that you can stop the process. If the identity came first, you wouldn't be able to stop it. So, in other words, uh, in the process of soup, you see, I like, that's the, that's the Vedna, like, want soup. I like want soup. See, that's the normal way. If the I came in first, you couldn't, how could you stop that process? Because you're identified with it. Identity means absorbed. You're it. That's it. Now that's the, our speech, you see, uh, betrays us because it tells us that the I comes first. So, if I say, I am depressed, that's it, isn't it? I'm stuck. I am depressed. So, what the Buddha discovered was that it's actually the other way around. It's soup like want I. And it's because that process is before the absorption that through awareness we can stop it right there and let the wanting, the wanting that we don't want that is, begin to express itself and die away. Otherwise, it'd be impossible. Now, that's what we're doing when we sit, you see. We're stopping that formation of, of upadana, of the grasping, of the identity. So when you sit, and you can see there's a pain, and then you see the reaction, I don't want the pain, and the desire to move, you see, but you don't do anything. That means you're not identified with that process. In not identifying with that process, what are you identifying with? Because there's definitely a sense of I still there. Okay. So somehow, 
through the process of the vasana, we begin to realize that there's a different position which is above, above the normal physical, psychological processes and can actually view it and see it and feel it and know it and eventually, of course, understand it. And the other thing we realize is that there's no suffering until the identity comes in. That might be difficult to grasp when your knee's exploding. <laughs> but <laughs> if you look very carefully, see, you, you've got to ask yourself the question, see, after the experience, see, don't think about it, why is it? You're looking at pain, for instance, saying the knee, see, and then you see that the reaction that you don't want it, see, and then you see that desire, this desire of wanting to move, shift, you see. And there's a difficulty because there's a leakage. There's a leakage of identity into that process. And it feels uncomfortable. Yeah? Mm -hmm. But when you finally abstract yourself from it and make it really an object to observe, there's a separation, isn't there? And the observer is no longer suffering. They're just with it in that equanimous way. The equanimity is the measure of non-attachment. See? And it's catching that process, you see, which, which establishes in us that inner experiential knowledge that this body is not me, not mine. See? And what that's doing is it's, it's um, ricocheting down through all these habits, down to this fundamental ignorance, this not knowing. And the view from not knowing is slowly being turned, slowly being turned. So the, the way we're looking at the world is slowly being turned, you see. And that slow turning is developing a new relationship with the world. And it's taking us out of suffering over a period of time. <laughs> I'll lose my train of thought. You're going to ask a question. Go on. All right. Ask. Um, so you, what you what you are saying is that the desires or the things we don't want are not ours either. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing belongs to an I because the I is fabricated. It's fabricated by this delusion that begins at birth that we must that because we have no reflection, we've got, got no language, we can't think about things. There's just that presumption, you know, I feel uncomfortable in me, in me tummy, so I start crying. It's, my, it's me. I don't say this is my tummy, I just, I'm just in pain, and I just start screaming. Until <laughs> <laughs> mummy comes. <laughs> There's no, uh, that early consciousness stage, so they say, about four months, it's completely enwrapped within a two-dimensional world of just, just, sensations. It's only uh, when, when you see babies reaching out for rattles it seems though that's when we're creating a three-dimensional world. Otherwise it's flat on. You know, Your face is right in the screen. See? Now uh, the next point is what happens when we identify. Um, now there's a very just as, just as an aside this process, up until the desire, the wrong desire, is exactly the same for an enlightened person, for the Buddha. He has a body, and he takes, and, you know, he's hungry, and he, right, and he has to make decisions. It's time for going arms round. See, so there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong with all that. But what he lacks is the next stage of this grasping nature or the aversion nature. But he still has to make a decision, mm -hmm. which is the next step. So the next step is having identified, see, I, I want uh, the, the, I, uh, the soup, you see. <laughs> there's the action, there's the empowerment of that desire, which is the becoming. Right? So in, 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 in here he talks about it as the becoming because, he uses that word because, 
It's the becoming of the I. The I is creating itself all the time, a sense of person. See, so this person now, that I am now, now, is completely refabricated in the now. Okay? In the now, I do something stupid, and that disappears. That person disappears. But the next person that comes up has to carry the tag. See, that's the process of, right? I can't say, I can say truly, I think, that at this moment, I did not overeat at lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Because this I didn't exist. But the I that did have lunch did overeat a bit. (laughs) So I was suffering after lunch from a slightly heavy stomach. You see what I mean? (laughs) It's not as though it's the problem of responsibility, you see. The problem of responsibility uh, arises because you end up with the consequences of what this other person did a couple of hours ago. <laughs> and it's your problem uh, in the present moment. It's my problem now. You see. So that's why he uses bhava becoming, because it's the I constantly recreating the sense of I. We're constantly recreating a sense of I, which includes everything I'm experiencing now in this present moment. Okay? Now, in that bhava, in that becoming, uh, to do that, there has to be an act, and that's what he calls a kama. Right? Uh, a kama. And the, and the consequence of the kama is a vipaka, is what, what happens. Okay? So, at that point, something has to take something potential and manifest it as a word, an action, a thought. Something has to manifest. Now, what makes it manifest, he calls chasing, that's the will. Now, the important thing to really grasp here is that nothing's happened at the point of desire. There's no karma and therefore no consequence so long as something remains as as a desire. But as soon as you empower the desire into a thought, a pattern of speech or an action, then it's, it's processed, you've had it, it's, it's committed, you see. And that's the becoming. So the becoming has both a reinforcement of a sense of I, but also a consequence because of the content of the act. I always give a, an example out of the Vinaya at this point, concerning thieving. Some of you might have heard it. No? Has anybody heard it? Oh, it's new, isn't it? Very good. <laughs> <laughs> For instance, if, um, if, this, if I wanted this, uh, this uh, bowl here, this, this gong, I passed it by and I saw it and I thought, well, that's a nice gong. And then there was this desire came up. I like that. See? <laughs> Nothing's happened. Nothing's happened, you see. However, if I pass the gong a second time, and I say, that's a nice little gong, and I go over to it with an intention of, shall we say, somewhere in my mind that I might just borrow it for a a little while, you see, uh, then uh, uh, I've actually done something. So this is called a dukkata. This is a a small offence. On the third pass, (laughs) I'm slightly overwhelmed and I actually touch the gong, you see. I actually touch it. So this is called a, a garo, this is a, a heavy offence. Right? I'm very close to losing my robes there, you see. On the fourth pass, <laughs> I, I really cannot, you know, and, and the desire overtakes me, and my hand shoots out to the bowl, and it moves it a nano-centimetre. And I think, no, no, and I let go and I run away. I've had it. I thieved. At that moment, even though it was moved only a nanocentimetre, the theft was committed. I lose the hardcore. And I, lose, <laughs> I, lose, I lose my robe and I don't even get the bowl. So that's a lovely way of, show, of, of, of sort of pointing out just there in, in an action how... Uh, how the intention grows and grows and grows and finally commits a real act. Of course, on the other side, there's all the loveliness, right, where 
you know you might think of, of helping somebody and then uh, and then and then you you go a bit closer and then finally you actually commit to helping somebody uh, then of course you get the benefit the beauty of of, uh, of compassion and love you Sorry? You get a second row. You get a second row. <laughs> <laughs> With gold army row. So, um, uh, this, that business there, if we can clearly understand what, what the Buddha's talking about when he says karma, he's talking about um, an act, uh, sorry, a desire which is empowered. Right? So it's not, in, in our language now, we say, you know, it's your karma, and it's what it means, your consequence. But actually, strictly speaking, in, in the literature uh, of Buddhism, you'll see that karma is one thing, dipaka, is the consequence of it. So there's your, there's your bhava. And the end of the process is the beginning of the act, the whole process of the act, and the completion of the act. Right? That's, that's the life, that's the birth getting up, decaying and death, that's at the end. That's taking the understanding of the dependent origination as a moment-to-moment -moment phenomena, which is uh, understood these days uh, much more clearly than it would have been, should we say, not so long ago, uh, because there they would reinforce the three-life theory. That mm -hmm. in, your in your previous life, you built up this sense of not knowing, this ignorance, which has created all this uh, karma, uh, sorry, habits, and when you're reborn, you, you, you're born with it, then you get the whole run of this, and then, of course, uh, life is the beginning of life, the decay, and, and the death of it. So, it can be taken both as a minute thing, as a string of things that happen within a given time slot, you see, or it can be taken as a, a one life, uh, as, as lifetime teaching. It doesn't really matter which, which, uh, which way you take it, except the, the moment-to-moment -moment one, you see. Now, when the Buddha acts in his life, what's missing is that, is that little bit about the, the, uh, the grasping nature or the, the aversion nature, but there's still an act. And in later literature, we call the Abhidhamma, this uh, later work, they try to give it a new word. So it's an action coming from the self is either good or bad, and it has consequences. The consequences are outward, of course, but they're also inward also inward right and uh, we don't know what the consequences of an act will be you might hope that they will be such and such but you don't know because when you act the force of your action goes into a matrix of relationships and the the interesting thing is it also goes inward into a matrix of relationships into your psychology so you don't know how life-changing a small little decision can be, you know, and uh, and then you know, uh, you're one, and then then you're amazed how you, how you how you've ended up in jail. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't I didn't do anything. That's all. <laughs> uh, and and the opposite, of course, is true. Uh, this is uh, this is very similar to what this you know scientists call this chaos theory. You know where. Mm given condition with surrounding supporting conditions can blow up into something uh, awful I mean they always have these doomsday view but it's, uh, but it's also nice to say to think that a small act of kindness somewhere towards Syria is, 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 is a kernel point where the conflict is, is healed you see So now if we talk about uh, what is coming at us now is given, um, we already have a structured personality full of habits and ways of responding. So where's, where's free will? Now, the idea of free will is a very Western thing. It really came about through Christianity, and as, as, I, as far as I understand, through the work of particularly St. Augustine, a philosopher. Um, it was basically an argument about the relationship between a human being and God. So God creates a human being, and he wants a relationship of love 
towards this creation. But if that creation is um, so constructed uh, to love him, then that's not much of a love, is it? You know what I mean? If you, if you create an object to love you, I mean, it might feel good, but you know it's not, <laughs> but you know it's not real. It's not real love. So therefore, it had to be argued that there was free will that was beyond conditioning, which could freely, out of a, an act of um, understanding and love, etc., etc., it was a free act of love. And what that's translated to for most of us, I think for, all, well, for most of us in the West, I think, is this idea that free will stands outside the conditional world. Now, when you walk into a supermarket and buy um, chocolate biscuits, this was an act of real free will. You know, that, <laughs> that you went in there and decided <laughs> freely that, yeah, you know, I know about the adverts, I know about, but I have decided I am going to buy chocolate biscuits. <laughs> and this, this tremendous sense of, of, um, of selfhood, of separation, of, 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 of an entity completely enclosed within myself. I mean, I see all you people, but you're completely opposite. There's no real connection with you in terms of my free will. And it doesn't matter that uh, the, there's a special offer on chocolate biscuits. I happen to have bought it out of my own personal free will. <laughs> so, this idea of free will standing outside the conditioned world is, is something that I think belongs mainly to the, to the West. In the East, and I'm thinking of uh, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism and, and places like that, there's not, there's not that sense of the free will being outside the process. Um, it's more in the sense of you're making decisions about uh, a situation uh, within, uh, within, given, within given parameters with so much information and from your point of view you're making a decision and it's conditioned both from the conditions you're in and from your point of view. Now that might strike us as a loss of free will. <laughs> See? So, um, all, each of you had various reasons for coming here. See? So there were reasons for coming here and there was your own personal um, connection with those reasons. And then you ended up here. So looking back on that decision, was it an act of free will or was it just something that was empowered because of the conditions you found in yourself and what you know of Sadipanya? When it comes to uh, choice, you see. I mean, this is what the consumer society, the, the religion of the consumer society tells you, uh, that you have a choice, you see. Um, that choice is only there when there's confusion, when there's not knowing really what you want to do. So, you know, when you walk in the supermarket and there are you know, and you know you only normally eat one uh, bag of biscuits, and suddenly you're struck with fig biscuits, as well as chocolate biscuits. <laughs> There's a moment of confusion, is there not? Like, you know, which, <laughs> which one is it? Now, you could, you, can, you can sort of swear and just pick one up, which is absolutely stupid, you see. In which case... There's definitely no free will because you didn't make a choice. Or you sit there with the confusion, arguing with yourself as to which one you might prefer this week. And then you have to look deeply into your heart and think, fig biscuits is what. <laughs> 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 see, 
and then and then and then the choice is made. You see, and one feels that was a good choice. That was, you know, I, I really uh, made a good choice there. You see, this I. And of course, it's all been manufactured by a my habits and the fact that maybe I've got fed up with chocolate biscuits for the moment, and and I need a change, and by the uh, by you know. Uh, the lost leader that the, the supermarket has given me on, on fig biscuits, who knows? So it's a, it's a moot point, isn't it? Whether we have this uh, free will, and yet there's something in us which tells us that um, I am making decisions. I am making decisions. So there's definitely an act of will. So... If we go now uh, back to the original state and just ask ourselves, well, what, what is it we all want, you know, fundamentally, right down there, uh, you know, even before we exist, what, what is it we want? We just want to be happy. Am I correct? We just want to be happy. And each of us will have a definition of what that happiness is. And that's what we're chasing. We're chasing the dragon, the dragon of happiness. We just want to be happy. And through our experience of life, we begin to realise that some things make me happy and some things don't. Okay? And as we deepen our uh, meditation and we get to this point of identity, uh, we realise that maybe something is wrong around that area. And we begin to realise, I think, that... My happiness depends a great deal upon the motivation, the intentions with which I do things. And when I look into my intentions and motivations, they're all about some form of relationship to the world. Right? I mean, call it wanting or not wanting, but it's about relationship to the world. And when we talk about relationships, we talk about ethics. We're talking about how do I treat somebody or how should somebody treat me. So life now moves towards an ethical basis. And this, you might say, was the great shift in human consciousness. Somewhere around the time of the Buddha. Where, you know, this business of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That was, that was the, the great teaching both of the Buddha, of Moses... Socrates, that, that business about relationship and about ethics, and it moves religion from a power struggle with the gods, where you are appeasing gods to get your way through sacrifice. The big moment in the Bible, of course, is I, who sacrificed, nearly sacrificed his son? Isaiah. Isaac. Isaac, excuse me. Isaac. He nearly, see, that was a, a crucial moment in. In, uh, in human understanding, that God did not want hum didn't want sacrifice. What he and then it, it moves to Moses, where he wants ethical living. He wants he wants harmony. He wants peace and joy and all that. Is it? And that's that was the that was a real shift in human consciousness. There, I think. You see. So now. The problem isn't, isn't free will, is it? It's, it's, it's actually more to do with right understanding and following the right understanding because you know that will lead you to happiness. And if you're following a right understanding that leads you to unhappiness, then there must be something wrong with the right understanding. <laughs> so it all comes back to uh, the way we're actually seeing things again. It all comes back to this point of view of, of how we're relating, how we're seeing things. So the spiritual path, as opposed to the path of, of uh, consumerist, is delineating the path. And as you walk along the path, because you don't know where the end is, in Buddhist terms it's, it's this foggy place called Nirvana, see? or foggy state called Nirvana. And you're, you're making your way over there, and you're happy with this present moment, uh, because you can, fairly, you can see it fairly clearly. As you move along the path, decisions come up. Forks appear in the path. 
which seem inviting, which seem, you know. And these are points where there has to be some discernment. Right? So you have to go into, well, you have to look at your maps and you have to uh, get your compass out and your, and, and, your, uh, and your GPS and all that. So is it GPS? I've got that. That's it, GPS. <laughs> and, and you have to work out where you are in, you know, in the middle of this, of this place that you're walking through. And then you make a decision and you can stay on the path, you see. And as you go along the path, there's always going to be a doubt, well, is this, is this the right path? So it's through that process of investigation, discernment, that we find slowly this path. But the path is already delineated for us. The Buddha's written it very clearly. I know that in, um, they always talk about the Buddha's freedom of uh, religious thought. And they always quote the Kalama Sutta. So the Kalamas were a group of people who were very confused. There was, and he, they said to the Buddha, look, this guru comes along and he says this. And then this guru comes along and says, that guru is a lot of rubbish. It really is all about this. And we're completely confused. So the Buddha says, well, he said, you know, you, you have a right to be confused. Yeah. He said, don't believe anything because the person's famous or because of tradition or because it's written in a, in a holy book and all that. So don't, don't believe anything. Um, but do what you know to be right for you, see. But then, you see, but people forget. He then went and hit them with the old Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it very clearly delineates the line, which he says, now, this is the truth, the man, all these other gurus. <laughs> but he does, but he does, he does say, and it's up to you to discover whether this is right for you. So it, 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 he throws it back to us to actually investigate what he's, what he's said. He doesn't put it to us as a belief system. So uh, as, we, as we move spiritually, what we, f uh, what we find, I think, is that everything we do, from the moment we get up in the morning brushing our teeth, to the work we do, uh, to the point where we fall asleep, everything is on that path. Everything has to be part of that path. And if it's not, it, it shoots you off somewhere else. And it creates, it creates a ricochet, it creates a disturbance. See? So, the, so our, our effort is not so much about free will, it's about right discernment. Because as soon as you discern something to be right, what's the point of free will? You've just got to do it. And it's only in those times in our lives when we know that we're doing exactly what we want to do that we feel most happy. And that was this meaningfulness that I was talking about uh, the other night, this, this sort of a deep sense of happiness, a deep sense of connection that we have with our uh, deepest motivations and the connection of that with the world. Even, as we know with some people, it ends them up into you know, being tortured and jailed and awful stuff, but they're connected to this much deeper path of meaningfulness within them. And then, uh, just as a, a final uh, addition to that, is um, the whole process of that becoming, you see, um, when, it's, when it's perceived, um, when it's understood, there's, remember, in our, in our meditation, also a recognition that there is something within this psychophysical organism, which is the discerning faculty, uh, which is an intelligence, an intuitive grasp of things. Yeah. And... Um, it really is a, a case of, you know, uh, I keep repeating this, but when you're in that state of the observer, you see, and everything's fairly clear and whatnot, and you, you come out of that at the end of a sitting or something, one of the reflections is, what is the observer made of? And what constitutes the observer? See? And just go through the list, you see. Are there any sensations in the observer? Are there any emotions? Are there any thoughts? 
That might be a difficult one because <coughs> it so easily identifies with thinking. Are there any images? So how do we know? How do we know what's in the observer? We know what's in the observer by knowing what's not in the observer. And we know what's not in the observer because it's an object. Whatever is perceiving cannot be the perceived. Okay. And that's, that's where we are, shall we say, rooting ourselves in something that's, that really is our true nature. Okay. So obviously in, in Theravada Buddhism they don't like to talk about uh, Nirvana in, in a personalised way. Uh, the Buddha, the, the, in the original teaching, was much more uh, insistent on talking about an experience. It was only in later Buddhism that the question was asked, well, if there's an experience, there must be something that experiences it. And that's when you get phrases like Buddha nature, uh, eventually just the big self, which is not a self. Uh, massive contradictions. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to express the fact that there is something in us which is not does not belong to this phenomenal world, to the to the world in which we actually live in. And yet, and this is the, uh, the paradox, it cannot come to know itself without this world. And nor can it know what it knows until it tells itself through thought. And you've all, I'm sure, experienced that when suddenly you've said something enormously wise and wondered where it came from. <laughs> and somebody said, well, that sounds very wise. And he said, oh, well. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I have this wealth of wisdom <laughs> which occasionally leaks onto the world. So um, it's really, uh, that's our investigation. And to, I think it's much easier if you abandon the idea of free will. And, and, and talk much more about what ought I be doing in order to develop my spiritual path. And then, you know, just, just abandon the idea, frankly. <laughs> so, uh, we've, covered, uh, we've covered quite a bit of ground, really. Um, I mean, books are written on this, aren't they? So, uh, you know, dependence origination. And it's for us to make that a personal, experiential knowledge. Like it's something we know through our meditation. We know the body and mind. We know the sense bases. We know the point of contact. That's when you're down in the knee and you're just feeling sensations. That's the point of contact. As soon as the word pain comes up, you're into Vedana. Right? You're into the point where you discern things as pleasant or unpleasant. And then you know this process of desiring uh, skillful and unskillful desiring. Remember, there is skillful desire. The desire to sit, to meditate, etc. is a skillful desire. Right? But even so, there's still an I that's doing it. The fundamental delusion is under there, you see. But that fundamental delusion is, through doing what is intentionally wholesome, is undermining itself. It's undermining that sense of self. So, one of the great... Um, uh, ways of undermining that is through love. Because through an act of love, the, the sense of I becomes a sense of we. So you're undermining it. So even though we talk in a sort of uh, negative sense about the I, to sort of get rid of the I and smash it up to pieces and all that sort of stuff, the I melds into a connection with all beings and with nature and everything. It, it sort of becomes... Um, connected, interconnected with it. And in that sense, it, it's, it's no longer self, self-seeking, it's no longer selfish, because it sees that the happiness of others also is part of its own happiness. Um, that lovely, I haven't got it with me unfortunately, that lovely prayer of St. Francis, you know, uh, uh, may, may, I, may I love rather than be loved. See, and it's only when we I mean, one sign, one sign, I think, of our growing spiritual wealth is the joy, the joy of giving something to somebody is greater than the joy of receiving something from somebody. <laughs> so when, 
when when that joy is bigger, it's a little signal to us that, that actually, you know, the, the, the release of the I into a we, into a connection, is is part of is part of that undermining of a sense of I. So, wh- what does the Buddha say? The Buddha says, whatever a teacher can have done for his disciples, I, out of love, out of compassion, have done for you. And the word he uses, anukampan, which is a sort of word which is moving towards, a giving towards, you see. So that was, that. you know, when you look at the Buddha's life, that's what he did. He became fully liberated. He didn't just sit there glowing in his liberation, you know, with a big sign, and like, leave me alone, you know, not present. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he actually gets up, he gets up. It's, there's a moment of doubt that comes across to his as to whether people would understand what he's got, uh, but he's 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 quick to overcome the doubt when he thinks about the, his teachers and then his companions, whom he realised were very close to understanding. You know. And then we talked a little bit about uh, this whole problem of uh, free will and around karma, and uh, just the suggestion that um, whether we have free will or not, in in a sense, is I think slightly off the point because. Uh, from our point of view, we're coming from a position of not knowing, and this not knowing is causing us problems. So our our uh, aim is is correct discernment to seeing things as they really are. That's a very common phrase in the scriptures, you know, to see and understand how things have come to be. It's almost normally translated as to see and understand things as they are. But it's not, it's the past possible. It's how, in other words, process. The Buddha's very much into process. How did we get to where we are, you see? And then, then you can see that process and, and correct it or reinforce it if you see it as beautiful. See? And uh, just a final uh, little addition. When we see clearly what's happening in the present moment... There's, there's no problem with understanding rebirth after death. It's catching exactly what's happening now that you realise the process is going to be endless. <laughs> what, what confuses us is the identity with this physical form. That's what confuses us. So we think that when the physical form drops, that's the end of it. Okay. But hopefully... At some point, you'll, you'll discern clearly that the mind is something other than the body. It's also arising and passing away. I can only hope my words have been of some assistance, not too confusing. May you, by your sheer moment-to-moment commitment to mindfulness, break through the delusion and arrive at that wonderful place of Nibbana. Sooner rather than later. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.